Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rocking good time in about 15 minutes with your good buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we tell you the stories about some of the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting ruminations about the music and rockers who've inspired us over the years. In today's episode, Dave is going to tell us the story behind Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. And just a corollary to that introduction, I'm going to say this is Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen and Jeff Buckley, because I want to focus on that, but there's actually an intermediate step in between Leonard Cohen and Jeff Buckley that we'll talk about as well. But for me, the Jeff Buckley version is the, and always will be, the seminal version of the song, although it was written by Leonard Cohen originally. And you know, no, you never want to do an apologetic rock tale hour or a podcast of any kind, but I actually was going into the song a little bit hesitantly. Because this song, in terms of the meaning and the interpretations and the background and the story, is so deep and it's so broad that I just worried about my ability to actually treat it properly. So that being the case, I felt like I wanted to do it, so I'm going to tackle it. And I know I've got friends of mine personally that could probably do this 10 times better than I can. So if I mess something up, then I'm sure I'll hear about it. Um, <laughs> and like you said, email, well, you can email us and, and rip me if I'm not missing, if I'm missing something or if I get something wrong on this, but be nice to my friend, Dave, though. <laughs> I deserve a little bit of a, a pass every now and then. Right. But it's a big song and I'm going to tell you guys why and explain why, and hopefully we can uh, come to a better understanding of it. And I'm, my goal is to inspire you guys to go pick up your headphones and I'll talk about that in a second. So Leonard Cohen, he wrote this song as part of an album called Various Positions. He wrote that, or he released that album in 1984, and it was originally rejected by his record company as not having very much artistic or commercial value. And Leonard Cohen's an interesting guy, He's super prolific, super deep. I would say I'm, um, you know, a fan, not a deep or hardcore fan, although I have friends who are, but his lyric writing abilities are so unique and second to none. And this is a very, very good example. Um, he's just a, an incredible songwriter on a lot of different levels. And the thing that's interesting about this song is the number of times and the quantity of versions that this song has been covered. And so there's about 300 cover versions that are known. It's Holy been covered. Cow. It's been covered in multiple languages, multiple continents. And but we're going to really just talk about the two covers that matter most, in addition to Leonard Cohen's. Um, by the way, as a quick aside, I will say this: I've I haven't heard all three cover versions of this, but I've heard a lot of them, and probably most of the ones that people are familiar with. One, which is also kind of a lot of people believe this would be the seminal version. Katie Lang did it as um, as a part of some kind of a Canadian songwriters. Um, award show, I think. And that one has received a lot of critical acclaim. And Leonard Cohen was actually in the audience for that. And he just said, oh, well, she just kind of opened and closed that song. It's done. She did the seminal version of it. I don't agree with that necessarily, but it is a good version. And then oddly, and I can't believe I'm going to say this name on a Rocktail Hour, but Justin Timberlake (laughs) covered it as part of the television, the televised benefit concert for Haiti when the devastating earthquake mm. hit there. And he partnered, it's, it's, it's Justin Timberlake on keyboards and it's Matt Morris on guitars with both of them on vocals. And I will tell you, I watched that last night. I think of Justin Timberlake as a pop star and on Saturday Night Live, he is great. I'd probably put him in the top five hosts of all time. Immensely talented. 
But, oh, my gosh, go listen to that. That's actually worth the five or six minutes you're going to invest in it. Justin Timberlake and Matt Morris, it's exquisite. He's actually a really great actor. Uh, Yes. One of – in fact, clearly I don't like his music very much, but it's not my type of music. But I've I've really thought he's been great and particularly in – what was this, the movie about Facebook with the social network? The social network. Yeah. He uh, and he was he played the guy that it, that founded Napster, and he was so good at that part. He's great. Yeah, he is immensely talented. He also played Boo Boo in um, what's what's the bear that filches Yogi Bear? Yogi Bear. Oh, he and did. his voice was awesome. <laughs> Tim is a treasure trove of yeah. movie knowledge. Yeah. You can go to you can go to Yogi Timberland Bear, knowledge. man. I, I've actually never Holy watched God. that movie, but I saw the trailer. And no, you've got it on DVD. Yeah, you're well, outed. Wait, that's it's in your pocket. His voice was awesome as Boo Boo. I'm just saying, uh, you know. So whatever. I know what Tim's doing when we're done recording yeah. tonight. <laughs> uh, so let's just talk a little bit more about how immensely popular this song has become, and then we'll rewind back to the beginning. By late 2008, more than 5 million copies of the song and its various covers had been sold in CD format. By early 2010, it had sold over 1.1 million copies digitally, and it went to number one in 2008 on the Billboard Digital Song Charts. Um, It went platinum in the U.S., double platinum in Australia, gold in the U.K., Sweden, New Zealand, Italy, and Belgium. So hugely successful song internationally, also domestically. But the song achieved little to no initial success. As I mentioned, it uh, barely even made it to the record presses when when Cohen first released the album. Um, but it became immensely popular after being featured in the movie Shrek back in 2001. This is the only song that I'm aware of that has this distinction that I'm going to talk about next. It is That song by itself became the subject of a book by Alan Light, and the name of the book is called The Holy or the Broken, Leonard Cohen, Jeff Buckley, and the Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah. Wow. So there's enough going on with this song, and that's what I'm trying to help you guys understand. There's enough going on with this song and what happened from its infancy to now its maturity that made me hesitant to tackle it, Um, partly because I've always been intending to read the book and I haven't read the book, so there's a disclaimer, but I know some of the elements of the book which we'll talk about. Um, the BBC did a radio documentary on the song, um, and so it's just received a whole lot of um, attention from the music public as well as from journalists, etc. So the story behind the writing of the song, Leonard Cohen spent years struggling to write it, and he wrote, by his own account, as many as 80 verses to the song before he pared the, ones, the, pared the song down to the ones that he wanted to use in the studio version, the version that he released on the album. That would be quite a concept album, huh? 80 verses of Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to have a heck of a lot of dynamics with the band or something to make that interesting. Yeah. But yeah, 80 verses. And um, during one writing session... Cohen tells the story that he was sitting in his hotel room wearing only his underwear and literally banging his head against the floor in a fit of frustration because he wasn't able to grasp all the emotions and put them into the song like he wanted to. So this song represents the culmination of a lot of pain and heartache and effort by Leonard Cohen. And it's interesting that that much goes into the song, and then when it finally comes out, it's kind of a nothing, and it doesn't receive any accolades from the press from anybody it's it's really kind of an unknown um uncelebrated song um but 
what made the song unique among other songs that are widely covered in that in the multiple versions exist as artists have chosen which verses they want to sing. Right. So here's the story. This is an interesting one. Um, And by the way, even Cohen himself plays different versions of the song when he plays it live and he'll cherry pick different, you know, verses that he wants to sing based on whatever he might be feeling. Alan Light, the author of the book that we mentioned, describes the song in his book as a kind of a musical Rorschach test or one of those inkblot tests and estimates that it's been listened to hundreds of millions of times on YouTube alone, meaning that when somebody decides they want to cover Hallelujah, in theory, you've got 80 lyrics to, or sorry, 80 verses to choose from. And so the ones that you end up picking maybe tell a little bit more about yourself than it does about the guy that even wrote them. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting song and very unique in that sense. So Cohen even encouraged the loose interpretation of his song from the get-go. He said he wanted to allow the song to be, quote, melancholic, fragile, uplifting, or joyous, depending on the performer. So he wanted to have variety in the way the song was interpreted. And so he's taken, I think, some amount of satisfaction in seeing the song proliferate and all the various takes on it. And there there have been... You know, as we've said, hundreds and hundreds, or if not thousands. And of course, he gets paid each time. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Either. No, <laughs> not a bad thing either. Although I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I did uh, listen to an interview with him that was recently done in the last uh, probably four to five years, and there was it came out in the movie Watchmen, and there was a movie critic who by that time, I think Watchmen came out, maybe you know Tim, it was a number of years ago, but anyway, the movie Watchmen came out and they used Hallelujah as part of the soundtrack. And one of the movie critics said, you know, can we please have a moratorium on including Hallelujah in every <laughs> single movie that comes out? Like Shrek was the first one that did it. Next thing you know, everybody's doing it. And it's like trendy. Cohen actually went on record and he said, you know what, I appreciate it and it's become such a larger thing that I ever intended it to be. But I kind of agree with that critic. It wouldn't. Be, it'd be nice if everyone just backed off a little bit. I think he kind of got saturated in terms of the song itself. Um, but let's go down to the roots of the song, um, and we're going to talk about the first cover of the song that was ever done. And if you listen to Cohen's version, um, it's clearly not one of my favorite songs performed by Leonard Cohen, either live or um, on record or in the studio. And just the way he sings it really doesn't do the ju- the song justice like other people have done. So anyway, John Kell, or sorry, John Kale is a Welsh singer and songwriter. He was one of the founding members of uh, the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed's band. And he was the first one to cover the song back in 1991, and he did it as part of a Leonard Cohen tribute album. So Kale had seen Cohen perform the song live and was impressed by it, and that's what inspired him to cover it. So he writes Cohen and says, hey, can you send me the lyrics? Cohen obliges the request, and he faxes him 15 pages worth of lyrics for the song. (laughs) (laughs) So imagine that. I mean, he had just seen it played live and said, hey, I want to to cover that thing. 15 pages later, you're saying, what do I do with all this? (laughs) So Cohen says that he, quote, went through and just picked out the cheeky verses. (laughs) Um, The the verses that, or I said Cohen said that, Kale. Kale said that he went and picked out the cheeky verses. Um, so the verses that Kale picked out are, generally speaking, the ones that most artists have used. And they're the ones that Jeff Buckley used, which we're going to talk about next. Um, so Jeff Buckley then heard Kale's version and was inspired to cover it himself on Buckley's only fully released album, 1994's Grace. And it's it's kind of like I liken Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah to Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower. He took Dylan's song and just made it so much his own 
that the uninitiated that doesn't maybe isn't a study of uh, a student of music or of Bob Dylan in particular would probably think, oh, that's a Jimi Hendrix song when they hear it on the radio. When really it's a Bob Dylan song, there's a lot of people and fans that think mistakenly that Jeff Buckley wrote it because his version became the seminal version. Um, and in my opinion, he took it to such a level that it's almost kind of like he broke off a piece of the song and owned it permanently, right? So, you know, Buckley's version, we're going to go deep into what, um, how he interpreted it. I just think it's really good. You know, we've talked about Dark Side of the Moon. And I'm actually going to go so far as to put this – I'm not saying to put this song on the level of Dark Side of the Moon. But in terms of your the way – the best way to appreciate Buckley's version is the is similar to the best way that I think you can appreciate Dark Side of the Moon. And that is get a really good set of headphones, close your eyes, turn off the lights, and just hit play. It's that good. And it will move you to no end. At least it does for me. It, it's so well done. So here's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Jeff Buckley's version. So he opens it with a literal and audible exhale. And then he closes by dragging out a long and tender hallelujah for almost 25 seconds near the end. So Jeff Buckley, I don't know if you've, and I'm, I'm like a, um, a Jeff Buckley fan, but not deep. I, again, I have friends that are really deep fans of, of Buckley's and know more about him than I ever will. But, um, you know, Buckley's voice was so singular and so powerful and so unique and piercing and haunting. And he just had that really unteachable ability to convey his emotions through his voice that very few singers have. Um, you can teach a lot of people how to sing, but you can't teach them how to sing with true emotion. And Buckley just had that in spades. And I think it's on display here in Hallelujah as better, as good or better than any of the other songs that Buckley wrote himself. So the song is um, it's also really simple. It's a fingerstyle electric guitar. And his, by the way, his electric guitar work is impeccable. It takes its initial cues and the rhythms and the, the stylings of the guitar is very similar to the piano version that John Cale used to cover it. But then Je Buckley goes on to take it musically from a guitar perspective deeper and deeper as, inter as he interprets both of the guitar and the lyrics in ways that only a guy like Buckley could. And so it's the guitar work is fascinating. It's really kind of reverbed out and the tone of his guitar is beautiful and it just matches so well with his voice. Um, so there's some other parts of the song itself, Buckley's version of the song that I want to highlight. So at about the three minute mark, and I'm hoping that by saying this, you guys will want to actually listeners and you guys will actually want to go listen to it and, and check these parts out. You had me at Hello. <laughs> <laughs> thanks jerry the song completes me <laughs> <laughs> it does um so at about the three minute mark he sings the lyrics i've seen your flag on the marble arch and love is not a victory march but then he says this he says it in such a guttural passionate way he says it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah um, and there's a real dichotomy in the song the song hallelujah you would think is about praise and happiness and hallelujah this is the song itself and the lyrics were written as um, a very sad and conflicted love song, right? And so it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. The way he sings that just like grips me. And then just before the six minute mark, he's softly singing this refrain of hallelujah. And it goes from this kind of soft murmur. And then all of a sudden Buckley rises unexpectedly. And he did this differently, by the way, every time he 
performed it live. And so when he was performing it live on the recording, on the main recording that was on the Grace album, he's doing the same thing. He's kind of like just ad-libbing and just feeling it. And then right about the six-minute mark, he's doing this really soft murmur of hallelujah. And then he just reaches up and you just feel the emotion welling up within him. And he almost screams hallelujah at you. And it just sends shivers down my spine every time I hear it. And it's just, it's just a wonderful expression of emotion. And then, like I said, the guitar work alone is masterful. Um, it expresses a range of emotion throughout the guitar, on the guitar, that is on the same level as his vocals. So Time Magazine, and we'll back my feelings up with some more legitimate music commentators. Time Magazine wrote about Buckley's version and saying that the song was, quote, exquisitely sung and that... Uh, Cohen murmured the original like a dirge, which we talked about, by the way. <laughs> Cohen's version, yeah. it does not do the song justice, ironically. So, quote, Cohen murmured the original like a dirge, but Buckley treated the song like a tiny capsule of humanity, using his voice to careen between glory and sadness, beauty and pain. It's one of the great songs, end quote. That's a great description. Wow. It's a great description. Um, and there's a couple others that I want to share with you. So in 2007, Q Magazine conducted a poll amongst uh, 50 renowned singer-songwriters. And Buckley's version was, um, was named as one of the all-time 10 greatest tracks recorded, according to this poll. right? And John Legend, who was one of the, the musicians being polled, he said this. Um, the song is, quote, as near perfect as you can get. The lyrics to Hallelujah are just incredible. The melody's gorgeous, and then there's Jeff's interpretation of it. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of recorded music I've ever heard, unquote. And I would 100% agree with that. In April of 2014, it was announced that, the Buck, that Jeff Buckley's version of the song would be inducted into the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry. So it's a part of our musical fabric now in, in, in the United States. And it's number 259 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. And, you know, let's just talk about a couple of the lyrical highlights because Cohen is so good and it's so poetic and his lyric writing abilities are amazing. And as, we've, as I talked about, this is the product of pain and anguish in terms of Cohen and, and his, the process that he went through to write this. So it opens up with a lot of biblical references that are worth noting. So, you know, in the, in the first verse, he says he talks about that there's a secret chord. There's a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? And then there's a really genius thing. And it's the only lyrical thing I can think of that dovetails so well with the music. There's a line that says it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift. So the song is written in the key of C. And the chord progression behind it, as he's singing it, he says the fourth, the fifth. Well, the fourth chord in the key of C is an F. That's what's being played is an F. The fifth chord is a G. He's playing a G. And then he says the minor fall, and he goes to the A minor, which is uh, the, minor, the minor third in the key of C. So anyway, what's happening musically, theoretically, the music underneath the lyrics is matching up is syncing exactly with the lyrics themselves anyway it's just a super creative way to to use that and then he says um and then the major lift it goes back to the major chord and it says the baffled king composing hallelujah and then there's a couple other references to the bible where he talks about uh, you saw her bathing on the roof and so he talks about david falling in love with bathsheba and he says you saw her bathing on the roof her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you um, and then it talks about how she 
he kind of overcomes him and ends up owning him. And then there's a little subtle reference to Samson and Delilah when it says, she tied you to her kitchen chair, she broke your throne, and she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah. And so the hallelujah is these feelings of love and almost imprisoned by love, I think, as I interpret it. And these women have such a power power over them that they can bring down the kings of the Bible. They can bring down the strong man and Samson. And um, pretty much sums up women. And the rest of us have no chance. And the rest of us, yes. It's the power of a beautiful woman. So the last verse, this is the last verse on the Buckley version. And when I heard it, I'm like, oh, man, that is, I don't, I'm not even entirely sure what it means for me or what Cohen meant for it. But when he, when he wrote it, I was like, man, that's just such a cool line to say. He says, well, maybe there's a God above, but all I've ever learned from love was how to shoot somebody who outdrew you. <laughs> I thought that's such a great line there. So anyway, Cohen's lyric writing, I just can't say enough about it. And when you couple that with Buckley's emotion, it just is capturing lightning in a bottle in this song, in my opinion. Uh, so real quick final note on Buckley. Um, unfortunately, he, similar to kind of many artists before him, never lived to see the widespread success of either his album Grace or that of his version of Hallelujah. So in late May of 2007, Jeff Buckley was in Memphis, Tennessee. His band had just flown in to uh, join him and they were going to begin work on their next new album. They had written a bunch of songs for it. And this is going to be an album to follow up Grace. And the same evening that his band arrived, Jeff Buckley decided to go for a swim in the Wolf River Harbor, which is um, in the Mississippi River. Oddly, he was wearing all of his clothes, including his boots, and was singing the chorus to Whole Lot of Love while he got in the water. <laughs> right? Um, and just at that time, a tugboat came passing by and threw up a big wake. One of Buckley's roadies was on the side of the river, and there was a guitar and a radio sitting there. And he saw the wake coming, so he wanted to make sure he saved the guitar and the radio. And he bent over, picked them up and moved them. And then when he turned around, Buckley was gone. And something happened with the passing of the tugboat that took Jeff Buckley underwater. And they couldn't find him. They launched a massive rescue effort that lasted all that night and into the next day. Never found his body. Five days later, down the river, two local... Tennessee locals found his body floating. Hmm. Really, really tragic. And the odd thing is, and I don't know enough about Buckley's personal life to speak intelligently here, but there was on the autopsy report, there were no drugs or alcohol in his system. And his estate put out the following statement. They said, quote, Jeff Buckley's death was not mysterious. It wasn't related to drugs, alcohol, or suicide. We have a police report, a medical examiner's report, and an eyewitness to prove that it was an accidental drowning and that Mr. Buckley was in a good frame of mind prior to the accident, unquote. So really just a tragic unexpected, random, almost death of just an amazing talent in terms of a singer-songwriter in Jeff Buckley. He's only 30 years old. So It's sad how many stories of rock end in death. It's strange. You know, like on a per capita basis? And I'm sure there's drugs yeah. related What's to it, What's the lifespan of a rock star, huh? Oh, yeah, it's probably parallels like the Middle Robert Ages. Plant and <laughs> Mick Jagger. <laughs> so 90 yeah <laughs> i was thinking about that when uh, bowie passed we're actually in my opinion fortunate that we still have all these legends with us oh, yeah. yeah i yeah, mean yeah, the yeah. fact that keith richards mick jagger robert plant jimmy page eric clapton the fact that they're still walking the earth with us 
is a miracle, considering what they did to their bodies when they were younger. Yeah, yeah. They're treasures. They're national treasures. You just need to, well, national in England, I guess, if you're Mick yeah. Jagger and Robert Plant, but... You know, they're all knighted. Yeah, they're they're treasures, and, and they need to be seen as such. And so, even if you go to a concert and they're not quite up to the level of forty, fifty years ago, you know, the the opportunity to see them at least once in in a lifetime is something that everybody ought to take the opportunity to do. Now, you think about the you know to broaden out the perspective. You think about the time in the Earth's history when we've been born. And the fact that we're on the earth at a time when rock and roll, I mean, within our lifetimes or our parents' lifetimes, rock and roll was born. Rock and roll didn't exist prior to maybe the early she'd want to go back is maybe the 30s with Robert Johnson. Um, so it's all within kind of our lifetimes. And certainly we're lucky to be doing this. And I think, and I think we've talked about this before in other podcasts, Tim, in 200 years, people will be looking back and remembering the Beatles. Mm-hmm. They're going to be remembering a lot of the bands that we're walking the earth with today. And so anyway, it makes it, it fills me with a sense of gratitude that we oh, yeah. get to share the yep. earth with some of these immense talents. It's great. Well, in this room, how many of, how many of these great people have we seen, you know? Oh yeah. That's, that's the incredible part of it. And the, it, man, just the, just the chance to go see somebody, especially, you know, back, back in the day in the prime, I mean, I, I just feel really lucky that in, you know, when I was young, I, I worked a, enough just to earn money to go con- to concerts as as often as I could. And I saw some really goofy bands that, you know, nobody even remembers hardly anymore, but I sure saw some of the great ones. Yeah, we're certainly lucky. This is a great song. And, you know, a, a testament to how great it is, is the fact that it is so overplayed and the fact that it's sung so badly on all of these audition type shows I mean, there's never a season where somebody doesn't – several people don't use it as part of their audition or or performance in order to move forward. And, you know, in, in many cases, sometimes it's really, really good. Adam Lambert, I think, sang a great version of Hallelujah. But, uh, you know, sometimes you go into those auditions that are just horrible. And how many times can you hear it sung horribly before you don't want to hear it anymore? And yet, you know, when you hear a good version of this song, it's great. It'll grip you. Big time. And interestingly enough, when uh, there was one of the, he was like a white kid with dreads, one of the American Idol guys, and he did a version of this. He didn't bring anything new to the song, which is why I could care less about it, because um, he kind of just tried to copy Jeff Buckley in his own American Idol-y way. But um, it was the only good thing that came of that is that Jeff Buckley's version shot up the charts immediately after because it kind of there was a resurgence in appreciation for the real thing. Sometimes, though, those audition... Those audition type shows, those competitive shows, there are moments of just magic. Like Mitchell Bruning, when he sang in in Holland's version of the voice, sang Redemption Song, and it's almost better than the original. Although I did listen to the original today and realized how really good that version yeah, is. Yeah, but he is incredible. Mitchell Bruning sang that song like he was channeling Bob Marley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did a good job. Um, but those. The two, I, I looked on a lot of um, sites that ranked all the versions, like kind of the, there's a the top 60, there's a the top 10, there's just so many versions that have been done. And um, the John Cale version was number one on most, if not all, the ones that I looked at when I was kind of glancing at it. And then Buckley's was number two. John, just because the reason the Cale's version was so important is that Buckley's, or sorry, that Cohen's original version 
did not even come close to doing the song justice. And then Kale brought it out of obscurity where the world said, hey, or guys like Buckley at least said, hey, this is really a great song. And then Buckley just took it and shot it out into the universe. Have you seen the version where the where the Irish priest comes out and starts singing, but he's changed all the words to to talk about the couple that's getting married? And I mean, it's good. <laughs> like the priest, he's this old dude, and and it's beautiful. But you know, and the bride is crying, and oh, and it's a, it's like somebody's real wedding. It's somebody's real wedding. Yeah, it's just oh, you know, somebody filmed the priest singing, and yeah, yeah, he he wrote his own lyrics, and it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty genuine. You know, like the priest doesn't think he's a great singer, and he ends up probably singing better than he thought he would, and it's pretty good. It's interesting how songs like this just tap into something in kind of the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And every human being in some way is going to plug in and relate to it for some reason. Yeah. It's interesting how that works. But I uh, didn't realize there were so many versions and lists ranking them. We we could be the hallelujah hour. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like yeah. I was gonna so go many. I was gonna go into like, oh, you know, here's all the artists that have covered it and at least give like a smattering of them. But there's just so many, it's pointless to even try to pick out of the hundreds and hundreds of versions that have been done. Just list the ones who haven't. Yeah. <laughs> People that were born before Leonard Cohen wrote it or died before Leonard <laughs> Cohen wrote it. So that's Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen and Jeff Buckley and John Cale. Well, thanks, Dave. To our listeners, you can listen to a clip of the song on our uh, link to iTunes on the Rocktail Hour webpage. Please go to iTunes and rate us if you have some time. Also, if you have an interesting suggestion for another Rocktail Hour topic or any other topic that you'd like us to bring up and cover during a Rocktail Hour. If you think we're lame, well, please just keep that to yourself or write us a really interesting email that makes us laugh, and we might talk about that too. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And until the uh, next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.